When does a service not feel like a service? When are you in a situation where you receive a service and you say, you know, that wasn't a service? When I talk about the word service and I ask you what comes to mind, some of you will jump to a negative view of service because the view of service is something that has to be paid for. These are known as the dreaded service charges. We know about these. It's pretty difficult to live in this world without paying service charges. It's how business works. These are services that require compensation. So your bank, financial institution, telecom companies, ticket agencies, restaurants, numerous other companies all talk about services. What they really mean is the service is offered in exchange for compensation. It is one definition of the word service. In fact, this concept has become a business model known as the service industry. And many of us work in the service sector. From the barista who makes your favorite latte to your bank who charges for you to write a check, there are numerous expectations for services provided. Because in reality, services will not be given without paying for it. Yet the idea of service still carries with it a sense of generosity, of goodwill. We all enjoy being served, being uh, people who have things done for us, being assisted when we need help, and it creates in us a desire to reciprocate. However, sitting through 15 menus on a telephone, getting to a person waiting, a, waiting an hour for service is not really a good demonstration of service. Even more ironic to me is the idea of self-service. This is where you serve yourself, but still pay for the privilege. Whether it's filling your tank, your car tank with gas, or paying for groceries at a self-checkout, you're paying for a service that you do for yourself for your convenience. Because one of the great blights of our society is lineups. No one likes to wait in the lineup to be served. All of these uses of the word service have one thing in common. Service is only provided when something is given in return. The provider of a service does so because in reality they want something back. It's for their own self-interests. And this becomes the primary, if not the only, motivation to give service. Why am I talking about this? Well, this is a danger for us. If we only view service as a means to receive something back, then that is not really a measure of what God wants us to be. It is really self-interest. If we only view service as a means to get something back, I will do this because I'm going to get something back. It's really a measure of self-interest. God expects and requires of us something different. In the kingdom of heaven, the concept of service is radically and profoundly different than what is found in our world. In the passage that Robbie read, we're going to discuss something about service. And we're going to see what Jesus taught his disciples about the idea of service. In the previous three verses before what we read this morning in Mark 10, 32 to 34, 
Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem with his disciples. In fact, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who were following were afraid. And again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. And this is what Jesus said. I want you to picture the scene in your minds. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise again. You know, what Jesus was sharing with his disciples, some very distressing news, horrifying news. He was saying he was going to Jerusalem to die and to rise. But we know from a parallel passage in Luke that the disciples did not understand what he was talking about. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it. And so they continued on towards Jerusalem. And then Mark introduces this curious ten verses. From where we sit, or I stand, knowing what we know now, the request of James and John to be seated next to Jesus in the kingdom appears at best to be insensitive, or at worst, a selfish response to the news. Jesus just told them, I'm going to go die in Jerusalem. And the next thing is, two disciples are saying, well, we want to be on your right and left. Not the best way to respond to terrible news. But the disciples did not understand what was going to happen. To them, Jesus was going to Jerusalem to set up his kingdom. Even after the resurrection, if you remember in Acts, Jesus has been resurrected, and they still didn't understand. In Acts 1.6, they said, came around him and they said, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They still were thinking of a physical messianic rule that Jesus was going to inaugurate. So in light of this news of Jesus, what he shared, we're entering this scene of Mark 10, 34 to 35. And this amazing request, this astonishing request made by these two disciples. Now we're reading this passage not to pass judgment. For we're equally guilty of times of insensitivity, of selfishness in a relationship with Jesus. No, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to come here to God's word in order to receive from God his very clear direction about what he expects of his disciples. Not just the 10, 12 men here, but you and I. What does God expect of us? He expects us to learn to live a life of service, a discipline of service. And it is through the discipline of service as we practice as a lifestyle that Jesus continues to transform us to be like him. So, although the discussion in these verses began with a question about, I want to be great in your kingdom, I want a place of honor, Jesus turns this question and gives a different answer. He answers a, a different way about what it means to serve. And to make it very easy for you this morning, we're talking about the ABCs of service. That should be easy to remember, the ABCs. It's something basic for us in the alphabet. A, of course, will begin to stand for attitude. 
The concept of serving begins with our attitude. And this is found in verses 35 to 37. James and John came with a question. And this question reflected a certain attitude. But they didn't ask it directly. They kind of went around it a roundabout way. They came to Jesus and said, you know, we want to do something for us that we're asking for. And this should remind you of another verse. Because they were not doing anything unusual. Jesus had already told them, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. And so they're asking. I'll come with a question. I want you to do this for us, Lord. And of course, in verse 36, Jesus says, well, what is it exactly that you're asking? They wanted the privilege to be sitting on either side of him in his kingdom. But aside from this ask and you shall receive verse, what was it that made James and John think that they could ask this question? It's a rather bold, audacious request to request honor. And there are a few reasons why I think that they asked this question. We know from the parts in the New Testament that James, John, and Peter, Peter, James, and John, shared a relationship with Jesus that was closer than the other disciples. And in some ways, they formed an inner circle. It was these three men, Peter, James, and John, who Jesus took with him when he raised Jairus' daughter. These three, not the other other ten disciples. In Mark 2, just before this chapter, it was Peter, James, and John who went to the mountaintop for the transfiguration and had an amazing experience. It was those three. And even more, Astonishingly, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was agonizing in his prayer, it says they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He then took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to pray and be deeply distressed and troubled. He chose these three men, his closest disciples. So it would seem natural that James and John would assume they could ask this question. They were the inner inner circle. But even more than that, there were thrones for everybody, thrones for all. What do I mean by that? Well, in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says this to all his disciples. Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So you would ask the question, where am I going to sit amongst those thrones? And so James and John, and in a later passage in Matthew, even their mother got involved. If you look at Matthew 20.20, it was the mother of the two boys who went to Jesus and said, we have a request for you. So she was looking out for her sons. And so in a way, the request by James and John was sort of like calling dibs. I'm going to ride shotgun. I'm calling it. Calling it. I said it first. It's going to be me. Now, here's where we come to their attitude, what was in their hearts and minds as they sought positions of greatness. The thing is, it was hidden as service. The request for a throne was hidden, couched behind this idea of service. In their minds, they believed that Jesus is the Messiah. 
He'd be enthroned over his kingdom, and they wanted to be his chief advisors, one in his right, one in his left. The seat on the right was most prestigious. The seat on the left was the next most prestigious. Their ambition was to serve the king, but it was really asked out of self-interest. And so their attitude revealed a number of things. It revealed an ambition for greatness, not service. It was for attention, applause, approval. It's about me. Like the picture there of a little boy leaning over saying, thank you that I was able to serve you. So it comes down to their own self-interest. So why would they would ask this question? And at this point in their lives, as they were walking with Jesus, this is before the cross, it's before the giving of the Holy Spirit, there was a distinct absence of authenticity reflected in humility. There was no idea of, of surrender or, as was discussed last Sunday, of submission, of asking Jesus what he wants, not what they would want. Their motivation was self-seeking and was not asked out of humility, but with a desire for greatness and for power, for honor, even in the midst of service. It was asked so that they would be above the other disciples and everyone else, even as it was couched as a means of service. When we come to the ABCs of service, we need to examine, first off, our attitude. You know, we're talking about the, the, uh, the discipline of service. Uh, it's an odd discipline to talk about. Some of them are kind of odd. But the idea of serving as a discipline, it means it's not easy to serve sometimes. It'd be quite difficult. But it begins with our attitude. So, what is your attitude towards serving? It begins with a humble heart, an attitude. James and John were thinking of service as a means to receive something, like my opening story about service charges. Today we would call this an attitude of entitlement. They expected to receive something because it was either owed to them or it was their right. They could reason, well, Jesus, you, you said, ask whatever you wanted. You said we're going to have thrones. So we're just we're asking. But they didn't ask in a way that reflected submission to him. How many times do we share this attitude and perspective towards serving? You know, we won't say it out loud, but it occurs in our minds sometimes. We think to ourselves, you know, why should I serve? Why should I do something? Why should I get involved? I mean, in the back of the mind is, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? There must be a reason why I'm doing this. Perhaps you're already serving. You're already doing stuff. But, you know, you think to yourself, no one's thanking me. No one appreciates what I do. So why should I continue doing it? Why should I continue to serve? After all, I'm busy, I'm tired, I've done my turn, or a number of other things can enter our minds. And this is how the world looks at service. What do I get out of it? Now, in this passage, notice what Jesus does not say. He does not condemn their ambition. You know, when they said, we want to sit on your throne, uh, on the side of your throne, Jesus could have said to them, 
You two are unbelievable. I just told you I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And how do you respond? Oh, we want it. We want this from you. You know, you're only interested in yourselves and no one else. Your very request demonstrates how unfit you are for places of honor. Jesus didn't say that. He chose to say something different in verse 38. He asked him a question. You don't know what you're asking. Your ambition, okay, is ambition, but you don't know what you're asking. You don't know really what you want or even how to ask for it. You see, the transformation that Jesus seeks from his disciples and from each of us is to move from a place where we're expecting to receive to a place we're expecting to serve. That's what service is. Service in God's kingdom is to, to give, not necessarily to receive. And this is our first A. A, B, C. And the B is for simply being a servant. When Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking, he then asked them a question. He said, you know, what you're asking for is going to require a cost, the ultimate cost. He says, can you drink from the cup I am drinking from or be baptized with the baptism I'll be baptized with? They would know in the Old Testament when the word cup is mentioned, it means judgment. It means suffering and death. Even Jesus in Matthew 26, 39 said, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. You see, even Jesus as a human man struggled with the idea of the reality of service. He's being asked to give everything for you as he served the father. Baptism, Jesus said later, but I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. This isn't the baptism of when John the Baptist baptized Jesus. It's not a baptism people confess their faith and are baptized behind me in this tank. This is a baptism of suffering. And he was saying to James and John, you asked this question, do you know what it's going to cost you? And of course, they said, yeah, we can accept that. The way to a great position in heaven was not seizing power, but by surrendering yourself in service through suffering and death. That's what he was asking them to do. Saying, do you realize what you're asking and what it's going to cost? And of course, they said they were willing. Yep. But they didn't understand. How could they? How could they understand? They wouldn't understand this until they saw Jesus on the cross. Or when they were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts and began to minister and realize the cost involved in serving. And of course, Jesus goes on and he says, you know, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. It's going to happen. And it was fulfilled. In Acts 12, 2, James was killed. It was about the time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church and trying to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. So James did drink the cup. He was baptized. 
in service of Christ. Who was the last apostle to die? It was John. He paid a different price. So these two brothers wanted to be first. One was first and one was last, even in their death of service. The other aspect of being a service aside from cost is that it's not your choice. We don't decide when and how we're going to serve. It's not up to us. It's up to the one we serve. The one we serve tells us what we're going to do when we're going to do it. Our position is to decide to be a servant. That's what we're supposed to be doing. It's the only decision we have to make. I am going to be a servant, not what I'm going to do. Because then you're not serving. You're serving yourself. It's a subtle, fine difference. And it comes down to service versus servant in verses 41 to 44. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. You know, the, the ten disciples, they heard the request. And the reaction was indignation. Being indignant means you're angry or annoyed over being unfairly treated. You can imagine the conversation. So you two, you two, you think that you're better than us. You think you deserve to be the places of honor next to Jesus in his kingdom. Now, the ten's indignation, their annoyance, was not necessarily over the fact that James and John had been insensitive to Jesus' news about his death. No, their, uh, their indignation was that they felt that they deserved that place. James and John just asked first. How do I know that? Because this isn't the first time this happened. This happened on numerous occasions. All in the context of Jesus telling about what was going to happen to him. Earlier, and that's supposed to be Mark 9, 9 33-37, on the way to Capernaum, they were arguing about who's going to be the greatest. That happened before. Even in Mark 10, verse 33, Jesus says something. He says, uh, no, verse 32. He says, again, he took the 12 aside. He did it again. And he explained to them, look, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to go up and to suffer. But they still ask the same questions about being great. Even during the Last Supper, they sat and argued about who's going to be the greatest. That was in their mind. Service means receiving. That was in their minds. True service is the pathway to greatness, Jesus says. And he compares the Gentile world with the world of the disciples. The Gentiles want to be served. They lord it over their people. And the authorities they have under them, they do the same thing until you go down to the lowest. And what is the lowest? It's a slave. Slaves have no rights. They are the lowest of the lowest. But for the disciples, Jesus says, you must be servants. 
And he uses two things. He says, anyone who wants to become great among you must be your servant. A servant is someone who serves somebody else. Any kind of service. But then he says, those who want to be first must be a slave. And a slave is someone who is committed or subject to one other. You belong to that person. Now Jesus is not talking about the the hideous slavery we see in the world. He's talking about the voluntary choice of serving as a slave. Not involuntary. Just to make that clear, what he's talking about. And Jesus offers himself as the prime example. In a nutshell, service versus servant boils down to this. Service is about you choosing whether or not you're going to serve. What is my reward? I can choose to take that service back or extend it. It's about me. I choose to serve. Whereas a servant has no choice but to serve. That's the difference. And Jesus says here, be a servant. And who's the model? As we look at being a servant, well, of course, it's being like Jesus. Jesus offers himself as a prime example to imitate. In verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The ransom, he speaks of, the the word means to pay the price of release. The price of release was going to be his death, his life on the cross. Now, the interesting thing was the disciples, they all considered Jesus as their leader. He was a rabbi, he's their teacher, he's the Messiah, he's the leader. But look how he led through being a servant, through service. And he calls him to do the same thing. When we think of service and discipline of service, we should first check our attitude and ask ourselves, why am I serving? What's my motivation? And this will become clear in a moment of why I'm kind of hammering away on this. Because it's true when we're reluctant or or we resist serving, we can choose not to if we just view service as up to us. And next, we need to decide if we have a servant's heart. Is that our heart to serve, to be a servant? But these two are not enough. The right attitude and being a servant is not enough. There's one more. It's the C in ABC. And that is to cultivate your love for Jesus. Everything boils around this. Because who do we serve? We are servants of Christ. That's who we serve. We have to ask our question, that question, of whom am I a servant? Am I, is it myself? My job? My family? My society? My church? Or am I a servant of Jesus? The discipline of service all boils around down to serving Jesus and cultivating that. And it's based upon our love for him. So if you look at service like this, and it's vitally important we understand this, it changes us from how we look at life, from choosing whether or not to serve to choosing to obey and be his servant. And so it kind of begins to look like this. Our first question is, how can I serve you, Jesus? 
I'm asking you, how can I serve you? Now, if you go to the Lord, and I, won't, I can't put words in his mouth, but God doesn't need anything. He requires nothing from us. If I go to him and say, Lord, today I want to be your servant. How should I serve you? Most times he says, you see the guy over there? I want to go serve him. So here's where the change comes. I'm not really serving that person. I'm serving Jesus. He's the one who tells me who, when, where I'm supposed to serve. When that happens, we move away from seeking recognition or appreciation. You know, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. We serve each other, but it's because we're servants of Jesus. So it's Christ-centered. We call it our love through Christ being Christ-centered. We're committed to our love. We serve Jesus because we love and worship him. This is our motivation. This is why we can serve without receiving recognition from the ones we serve. This is why we can serve without the motivation of being rewarded or given a payment. This is why we serve when we don't feel like it or are too tired. Because Jesus becomes the heart of our discipline of service. Now, if you want to engage in this spiritually transforming lifestyle of being Christ's servant, it means cultivating, deepening, building your love for Jesus. It revolves around that. Not the service, the one we serve. You serve others because you love Jesus, and in and through service is how he changes you and transforms you. You know, Foster in the book that some of you are reading says this, of all the spiritual disciplines, service is the most conducive to growth of humility. Nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service, and nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like serving in hiddenness. He continues, the flesh whines against service, but screams against hidden service. It strains and pulls for honor and recognition. It will devise subtle, religiously acceptable means to call attention to the service rendered. If we subtly refuse to give in to this lust of the flesh, we crucify it. Every time we crucify the flesh, we crucify our pride and arrogance because we're serving Jesus as the means through which we're practicing that discipline. It also requires consistency, practicing being a servant, because it takes practice. Being a servant does not come naturally. We're naturally selfish. Look at any two-year-old. What's the first word kids learn? Mine. We're, we're, we're wired this way for after the fall. So it takes quite an effort to break that, but we can't do it in our own strength. It's why service is so difficult. It strikes against our pride. It crowds out against what we think we deserve. And so it requires daily practice and belief to break that. And believe me, when you're serving Jesus... It drives you into his arms. That's why I included that picture. Because that's where you find the strength to continue to serve or even to begin to serve. It comes from him. Because he knows what it is to serve. Exactly what it is to serve. 
Let's put this together for you. The ABCs of service. The A, of course, is for our attitude. Asking yourself, what is my attitude? Somebody asks you a question, would you serve here? Would you do this? A, attitude. What's my attitude? Is it surrender before God? Is it humility? The B is being a servant. You're a servant of Christ. And it's cultivating your love for Jesus. So, what does Mark 10, 35 to 45 look like in your life? You're going to leave today and go out in your week and spend your life. So, what are these, how do these verses look to you? What do you take from this? How do you develop the spiritual habit of being a servant of Jesus? Well, believe it or not, I'll return us to our church covenant. Every member here has prayerfully signed a covenant to do exactly that. We will serve the ministry of our church. We'll be servants to Christ. Discover our gifts, have a servant's heart, be equipped to serve, to attend and participate, and to give regularly. Those are all aspects of the discipline of service. I look at this list and I say, I need help. This list is quite daunting. But Christ calls us to serve him. And we can serve him as a body of believers together. In the world, there's ways to serve too. And Foster helps us there in his book. At the end of his book, he gives a number of things. Serving Christ by serving in charity. Being charitable to people. You know, I don't know how many times that people uh, just want you to listen to them. No one listens. They're so busy. Just serving somebody by listening. Christ may say to you, Lord, today I want to serve you. How can I serve you? I want you to listen to this person. I want to listen to your wife. I want to listen to your husband. I want to listen to your children. I want to listen to your colleagues at work. Just don't say anything. Just listen. Sharing God's word. Sharing what you're learning. It's an act of service because you're sharing Christ. I like this one, guarding another's reputation. You know, we live in a world where it's so easy, especially on the internet, to say things. And it's so easy to damage someone's reputation. Guarding against it. Refusing to hear somebody talk about that. I don't want to get involved in that kind of conversation. That's a service. Hospitality, ministry, service and loving Christ. These are how we practice the discipline of service. If it was easy, we wouldn't be talking about it. Because God wants us to be transformed to be like his son. So know your ABCs, your attitude, being a servant and cultivating your love. And as you leave from here, begin to think differently. Begin to think in your mind, I am Christ's servant. That's my heart's attitude. I want to be your servant. That leads you to ask every day, in every situation, Lord, how can I serve you? Not how I can serve in this situation or in this need, but first, how can I serve you? Because when Christ gives you the direction to serve, then you're in his will. He can give you the resources. He knows exactly who you are. Sometimes we can rush to serve and it's not wanted. We can get involved in a situation where we shouldn't be involved because we feel that, hey, I gotta, I have a, there's a need, I'm going to solve this need. 
We slipped into self-interest now. I'm serving out of my own self-interest because I think they have a need. They haven't asked for it, but I'm going to do it because, you know, a nice person. But Christ says, no, wait. You ask me. You serve me. You're a servant of mine. I will direct you where to go. I will direct you what to do and what to say. I will give you that ability. You ask the questions. It can even be as simple as, Lord, should I get involved in this situation? Would you give me your direction? Because I want to obey you. And then we're serving Jesus in his strength and at his direction, which is only done as we cultivate our relationship with him. We serve him by being with him. And as he's with us, he changes our hearts so that we know what he wants, both from his word and through the other disciplines that we've been talking about, from prayer and fasting and submission, simplicity, study and meditation, next Sunday's stewardship. These are all interlinked like a puzzle. And when it comes together, and it's all practiced together, God begins to transform you in ways you cannot imagine because you're putting yourself again in a place where he can do it. And the place I'm calling you to be today is to be his servant. That's what he calls us to be. Obedience is greater than sacrifice. He wants us to serve him. So the discipline of service means being a servant of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you um, you left your place in heaven. You set aside your glory and the power of your deity. And you came to the earth to serve the Father, to become a servant of God the Father. And it was your perfect will that your service to the Father would be in our redemption. Jesus, thank you for showing us what it means to serve. Thank you for showing us, Lord, what it means to be a servant. Lord, we confess it is not easy to be a servant. And we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you fill us with your desires, with your thoughts, that we might truly be yours, directed by you and living for you. And that you would use us, Lord, as vehicles for you to be served and to be glorified. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.